Let's go before the Lord one more time. Father, um, we praise you for your good. Thank you for loving us. <laughs> and we love you, and that's only because you loved us first. <clears throat> Thank you for um, the gift of salvation. Thank you that um, we were once uh, rebels and we hated you, and um, you poured out your wrath on your son in our place. And he paid for um, the penalty of sin. Um, uh, what an amazing thing to think on, to think that you have made a way. We have peace with you through your son. And we have your spirit and we have your promises and we have your precious word. And as we look at your word this morning, may we put it in its uh, rightful place. May we honor you. Um, may we love your creation. And may we love you more as we leave here this morning. I pray that we would be um, <clears throat> humble, that we would be teachable, and that we would be eager to align our lives with your word. Um, and so I, I ask for your help this morning, um, and I ask for clarity. Help me to know what not to say and help me to be a humble um, ambassador for you and your gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, it is really a privilege to be here. It really is. This is, this is sweet um, to see all of you. I thought I would see more faces that I didn't know, um, but I think I do know you all, so that's good. So let's, um, let's go over the Wellspring Disciplines. So go ahead and turn your notebook over, and we're going to talk about why you're here. Um, we are here, you are here, to equip and encourage one another. The women of Grace Bible Church, to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word. So that, and that, so that's a big deal. So that we live out so that we live gospel-transformed lives. That's what we want to do. And there's a big purpose in that. See it? It strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. That's why we're here. And we're here because we want to understand um, and grow in our understanding and unite, and unite our lives around these disciplines. And at, well, at Wellspring, you focus on three, concerning our hearts and our home and our ministry. So discipline one is about... The heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And when we say heart, what are we talking about? Do you remember? I know you've had this teaching already. What are we talking about, biblically speaking? We're talking about the inner man, right? All of who we are. Our mind and our desires and our will and our soul. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our heart desires. God transformed our hearts when he saved us. We're new creatures. We have peace with God. We didn't want that. We didn't want any part of that before. But he's given us new desires as believers. We are united with Christ. And, all, um, and that all was accomplished once and for all by God. Remember that one-time event? Now we're being renewed day by day in progressive sanctification. There's still a residue of indwelling sin within us, in our new hearts. 
The good news is that sin is no longer our master. No longer. But there's still that lingering effect, that residue of sin. And we thank God that we're not who we once were. We were dead. We were lost. We were hopeless. But he intervened. And yet we're not yet uh, where we won't be battling sin. That's heaven. So while we're in this mixed condition, it's necessary to care for our hearts to feed our hearts, to strengthen our new hearts, that we worshipfully, worshipfully pursue God through his word with an expression of love for him and a need for him. It takes discipline. Um, that worship takes place when you read your Bible. It doesn't just happen. It really does take discipline. His word, it tells us who he is and who we are and what he's done and how he wants us to respond. Our heart needs to be exposed to him and his word so that we can draw near. Perfect song. It's good for us to draw near to the one whom we've been united to and to treasure him above all. And we do have to be purposeful and disciplined. These are disciplines to grow in. We're not perfect in them. This is a lifelong pursuit. So, I don't know, I just want to encourage you, if you're discouraged in this, and you think maybe you have failed in this once again, um, in meeting with him regularly, daily, in his word, um, remember, God's love for us isn't dependent on our failures or our successes, right? It's only based on his son's finished work on the cross. So let that be your motivation, to worship him in his word. And discipline two is an overflow of discipline one. Discipline two is about our household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So the place to make an impact with our hearts that have drawn near to him and his word is where we live. That's the first place, our homes, regardless of season of life. Seasons change. So whether we're empty nesters or single or married or with or without kids or living with parents, siblings, um, or those coming into our home as we shepherd our hearts first, as we're drawing near to him and we're pursuing Christ and we're delighting and growing in our affection for him, by his grace we're fighting and dwelling sin and ongoing sanctification, we want to place a priority right there, right there in our household relationships a priority in making a gospel impact with those we live with and with those who enter into our homes. So it's good to ask, you know, what kind of impact, what kind of influence am I making with those relationships? We do impact those relationships. Are we having a gospel influence? Repenting, forgiving, loving, humbly serving, overlooking offenses, preferring others. Are we growing in that? very sobering to think about for me anyway. But be encouraged, this too is a lifelong progress, process, progressive sanctification. (coughs) Hopefully it's progressive. And it doesn't just happen because you want it to. It just doesn't. It takes being purposeful with our own hearts first. That's why we talk about discipline one, our hearts so much here. And then to see these relationships as a priority. And discipline three, ministry. Ministry where we minister to others as we continue to grow in these disciplines. We don't wait till we have them mastered. We never will. But as you are being faithful and you're pursuing and you're growing, you minister to others in the church and outside the church to a lost world with the very same 
same with the heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household, disciplines one and two, you step into the church and wherever, or wherever God puts you and you shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So uh, there are your disciplines. This morning we're going to take a look once again at what God's word says about womanhood. So, um, how many of you, and I think most of you have taken Wellspring, can I, how many of you, how, how many, um, how do I want to ask this? This is your first time taking Wellspring. So, a couple, okay. Um, so, I want to ask you though, do you think that maybe some, if, uh, of what we believe about our womanhood or femininity is based or influenced by our culture and not based on scripture? Our culture has so much to say about this topic of womanhood. There's no shortage of opinions regarding questions like, what does it mean to be a woman? Who decides what a woman even is? What can a woman do? What should she be? How's a woman different than a man? How is she the same? How should a woman relate to men or to other women? How do our gifts, abilities, and training fit with who we are as women in our society. And our culture is doing all that it can um, to influence us to agree, at times demanding that we agree with its opinions on things like female superiority, um, its rebellion and confusion regarding marriage, gender roles, and gender identity. You know what? It's all over social media, it's in the blogs, it's in, it's on Facebook posts and Hollywood, it's on TV shows and entertainment, it's in our colleges and universities and our educational systems, it's in children's books um, and children's clubs. <coughs> this year, same-sex marriage was legalized nationwide and it was being promoted and celebrated uh, on the white at the White House, remember it was all lit up and on their webpage. Uh, sex changes are becoming more commonplace and celebrated, and those who are doing so are being considered heroes in our culture. Gender neutral schools, uh, um, there's many gender neutral schools throughout our society, allowing children to choose the, the gender they would like to be. There's they're implementing more and more transgender policies in schools and sports. I just read an article last night. It just happened to be someone posted it, uh, a, a school in Canada that was public school, saying you can no longer identify parents as father and mother. You need to identify them as parents and as caretakers. Um, you can no longer identify children as uh, he or she pronoun. This is very close to us, um, and this is public school. Um, that's what's going on in our society. Um, they want male and female to be negotiable. Um, they want the rights to uh, alter gender however they want to. And whether it's a message, though, I mean, listen, whether it's a message of equal rights or men bashing or of unlimited freedoms to express sensuality and sexuality, it's what's saturating our culture, and it's being celebrated by our culture, and it is a full-on Rebellion against God. But you know what? I was completely rebellious as well. 
until God intervened. I needed a new heart, but God in his mercy, he gave me, he gave us a new heart with new desires, and that changed the way we think and the way we live. So let's keep that in mind as, as we think about this, and we love and we pray for others and for our, for our leaders and for those who are re- rebelling against God and his design that God in his mercy would intervene and he would, uh, they would humble themselves and they would repent and save those who, who don't know him as well. Okay, so we just need to keep that before us. Um, so let's be careful to see where our culture has embraced ideas that completely deny our creator's perfect design so that we're careful to think biblically. I like this quote from Wayne Grudem and John Piper, and it's on your notes, and I think it kind of sums it up. It says, they, uh, they write, and they wrote this several years ago, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It's taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons, which is what they say they're uh, searching for and after. The consequences, rather, is more divorce, more, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress, and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. This is the world we live in. This is where godlessness and exaltation of self against God has taken us, and it may be very close to some of you. I don't know, but I know that's hard if it is. So I want you to hear me when I say I'm here to encourage and to speak truth to help us gain a strong understanding of God's design for us. What I am saying is not politically correct. It's anti, you know, uh, politically correct, or it is not politically correct, but you know what, it's okay, because we belong to our great Savior, and so we want to be biblically correct, right? We want to be biblically correct, and so we need to know what God's word says. He's our creator, and as our creator, he alone has the right to rule. He created us in his own image, male and female, and he's the only one who can tell us his purpose and his design for us as women or men. And you know what? In the past, these kinds of truths about gender and about marriage, they were generally caught. You know, we knew this, right? We assume assume that that, uh, it was known. But now, you know, it must be intentionally taught. You know, the paradigm, it's shifted. It's changed. Our children need to be taught, ladies, and shepherded toward thinking and acting biblically about their identity as girls and as boys. So they understand God is the one who reveals his design for us. It's so critical. It's so critical that we're grounded in gospel-centered theology about God's design and God's design for marriage, too. We cannot assume that people in our church have a biblical framework for understanding these things because what kind of people does God save? He saves sinners. You know, he saved like you and me. And sinners... 
who may very well be saturated in the lies of the culture. And just as he's teaching us from his word, and he's changing us, and he's changing our thinking uh, to be more and more in alignment with his word, um, we have the privilege of being his instrument to help others understand his beautiful design. So we need to know, and we need to humbly speak, and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about womanhood and marriage and gender identity without fear. Even though we may be persecuted for speaking the truth, we probably will be persecuted for speaking the truth, but we do it, and we do it in love and with conviction from God's word. So we need to teach our sons and our daughters. The next generation, there's so much at stake. Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions, and if you've been through the membership class, you have gone over them already. Um, and we made a copy for you to have. But I'm basically going to cover number seven, the biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. And we're going to look at scripture this morning, and we'll see God doing two things throughout his word that cannot be separated. So throughout your outline, you'll see this. You'll see uh, spiritual equality. Men and women are spiritually equal before God. And then you'll see role differentiation or different roles the distinctions and differences between roles of men and women in our families and in the church. And if you missed last week, um, I encourage you to go back and listen to Scott teaching on Titus 2, 3 through 5. I'll be kind of reviewing some of the same. Um, And then Sarah is going to come, and she's going to teach uh, Titus 2, and there'll be um, more teaching on, on that and on marriage and how we kind of take what we've learned about um, our identity and our roles and help us apply more. But men and women are spiritually equal before God, and we have different roles in our families in the church. And on your outline, you're going to see that in three segments. You're going to see it in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at Jesus' treatment of women, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look more into the New Testament. But it's so important that we understand these two biblical realities. They're inseparable. The reality that men and women are spiritually equal before God, and then we have distinct roles and differences, is called a complementarian view. And we embrace this complementarian view because that's how God's revealed it to be in Scripture. And because it's, there's this amazing revelation that biblical manhood and biblical womanhood bring into this dark culture, into this world. Listen, the world is pursuing freedom and pursuing joy and pursuing fulfillment and equality. And we're only going to find it. There's only one place that we find freedom and joy. It's not in casting off his design, but it's by embracing it, embracing his perfect design. Our true joy is found when we make God, our whole pursuit is making God more clearly known. So we want to humbly embrace whatever he's given us to make him more visible. We don't look to our culture to find our identity. Our feelings are not going to help us discover our purpose. There's only one place to go to know what it means to be a woman, and that's God and his word. He made women. Sweet little Elizabeth Elliot says this, and I just love it. Um, In order to learn what it means to be a woman, 
We're going to start with the one who made her. So let's turn, finally, to Genesis 1.26. And we're now at the first point of your outline. We're starting in the Old Testament with spiritual equality. And we see from the very beginning, we see in Scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. Starting in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Male and female, he created them. This is his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. And you heard Scott say this on Sunday. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15, says that he, Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we look to Jesus to see what that image is. And what did it look like for Jesus to be, to bear the image of God? Philippians 2, we know, uh, Philippians 2, 6, who although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus existed in the form of God, and form is a similar word to image, so he existed in the image of God, and then he didn't regard that unity or that equality with God as something to be grasped after. Verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not promote himself. He didn't fight for his rights. But rather, here in verse 7, we see he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. It's interesting, being in the form of a slave, or being in the form of God, led him to take on the form of a slave. He's in the form of God, it led him to take on the form of of a slave. So we see in Jesus that the image of God is that of serving, not grasping for yourself or your ideas, or your rights, or your own self-definition, or your self-promotion, but humbly giving yourself away. Jesus confirmed this when he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather, we know what he said, right? He came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve, and he did that by giving his life away. So that's the image in which men and women were created to bear this kind of self-giving love in Christ. So we're spiritually equal before God and others. However, men and women have also been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. See, after man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, we see sin entered the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power and his perfect design and abundance. We can't even relate to that humanity that's perfectly innocent. Unfortunately, we can relate to chapter 3, right? You read that in your homework, I think. 
So we go from his majesty and wonder in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory. The serpent came and slandered God. And Eve's heart was enticed away from being self-giving to being self-grasping, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves. When we grasp self-rule of God's or self-rule instead of trusting God's rule. So Eve sinned, then Adam gave in, and then two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And that's what we all have been plagued with ever since. So men and women are created in the image of God, equally impacted and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. Men and women are both equally unable to change their self their uh, sinful condition, and both equally in need of salvation. One is not more in the image of God than the other one, and uh, one is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We're spiritually equal. But there are differences in our roles that God has for us. We're on B in your outline, role differentiation. Turn to Genesis 2.18, where God shows us his purpose in creating woman. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground of the... And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then... He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken for man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. So right here, we already see the differing roles before the fall, before sin entered the world. Even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles, but it doesn't affect our spiritual equality at all. So God created man first, then the woman. He had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul refers to in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3, says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man's the head of the woman, and God's the head of Christ. There's an order there. Do you see that? Now, God always established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. In Israel, men were responsible for um, the national and religious leadership from the garden to the final prophets. There's Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to David, the rest of the kings, the priesthoods of Israel, prophets of the nation. And women were also active in the religious life of the nation. 
Miriam and Hilda, they were prophetesses and Deborah was a judge. But this is important. What we do not have an account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests. There were never any heads of tribes or kings. Remember, man and woman already had their roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment because of the fall. And now some people think that, but that's not it at all. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin at all. The distortion of our roles didn't start when God pronounced the curse to women in Genesis 3.16. It started the very beginning of chapter 3. We find Eve, and she's in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter, and he's evil, and he's deceptive. Verse 6, she believed his lie, that if she gave in, she would become wise, and that God was keeping something from her, and that God was, uh, or that if she, and so, what did she do? She disobeyed God, and she ate. She gave it to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. So we already see, who's Eve listening to? Who's she trusting in? She's trusting in herself, in her own wisdom. Think about Eve. What was her sin? I know I certainly can identify. Independence, self-grasping, self-reliance. What was she even doing listening to the serpent anyway, right? She's trusting her own judgment. She's getting out from under God's authority, out from under her husband's leadership and protection, and seeking to satisfy herself, rebelling against God. At that point, was he bearing God's image as, um, of a servant, of self-giving love? Was she fulfilling her role as a helper to Adam? How does it honor God, God's right to define her role? Adam certainly had his part and is fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed a lie that she could trust in herself, or anything, or anyone other than God. And as we live in this mixed condition, thankfully this side of the cross, this is very familiar to us as well. So let's pause and try to see how we might see this in our own hearts. Just like Eve We may independently step out from the protection and leadership that God has provided for us and over us, our husbands, if married, bosses, parents, government, church leaders. If married, we may independently step out from our husband's protection and leadership to seek control over him. We may do that by, yeah, taking charge, seeking to control or to exert our own will, stepping outside of God's design and falling into the same deception of sin as Eve. And now you may be thinking, I'm pretty sure I don't do that. I don't try to control my husband or anyone. But you know what? (laughs) It can show up in various ways, kind of sneaky. For some of us, trying to control maybe like the quiet, silent treatment, you know, sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness or indifference. And with others, it's a shouting hostility. It's not much of a secret to anybody. And for some of us, uh, we have a way of just bulldozing right over others with our words. 
right? Does that show up in your household? This is what sin does. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of rules. And it's good to identify it and then deal with it. You know why God gave us rules? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has for us. So sin distorts our God-given role differences. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited the life and the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth. No part of life from birth to the grave has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. See, equal rights, men, gender, it's not the problem like the world would have us think. We need to acknowledge that our problem truly is sin. Sin warps everything. Sin's a reason we need a Savior. All right, that was the Old Testament. And now we're going to look at how Jesus, uh, at how Jesus emphasizes the exact same thing. We're going to see this consistent pattern. This is God's plan from way back, and now it's continuing. We're on number two in your outline, where Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with man in the midst of a uh, woman demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions. They were not even worth teaching the Torah, God's word, to. In fact, they believed it was better to burn it, to burn the Torah, than teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truth. And men in Jesus' day, they normally wouldn't even allow women to count change in their hand. Um, They didn't want the physical, they were afraid of the physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. I think you looked at some of these in your homework, um, that the references are on your outline, and you can look them up later if you want. But in Matthew, we see Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful to women. He revealed uh, himself as a woman. He did not. Jesus revealed himself as a Messiah to women. <laughs> goodness, goodness. That's in John 4. And when Chris taught the lesson on Mary and Martha, you saw that Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was so countercultural. I'm glad you guys are awake. Jesus touched women, and he allowed them to touch him. In Luke 8, we see uh, 8, 1 through 3, where Jesus allowed women to travel with him and his disciples, and that was countercultural too. And in John 20, Jesus revealed himself, first to Mary Magdalene, remember, after he rose from the dead, and he sent her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way they'd never known in their culture. He did not demean women, ever. All of this demonstrates their spiritual equality. 
And you know what? Jesus at the same time did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though you know he clearly could have, is to choose any of the women to be among the twelve. That would have been the perfect time to make the change, right? To to do that, a prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed in the Old Testament, a time to establish a change for women's roles, but he didn't change women's roles. Have you ever wondered why? Why Jesus didn't change or he didn't choose women disciples? Well, because he affirms and he continues God's view and pattern for the role of women established way back at creation. And that leads us to number three on your outline. The rest of the New Testament under spiritual spiritual equality. We know Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is about redemption. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another, ever. We see on your outline um, from Acts 28, there was Priscilla and his wife Aquila, and they ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with a more complete teaching on Christ to correct some um, doctrinal issues. And in Philippians 4, there's Odia and Sintuke. Um, they both shared uh, Paul's struggle and the cause of the gospel. And we also see that both men and women receive spiritual gifts. In 1 Peter 3, the wife is the fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are different differences in roles. You know what? It's so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament, right? We love that uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The men and, and women are equal and equal need of uh, Jesus. And we have an equal cleansing and his blood. But this is so important to understand. The gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles that God gives us for men and for women. He has designed different roles specifically for us in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. We just have to remember what we see in God's word. It wasn't inspi- It's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It wasn't inspired by the culture of that day. You see references on your outline where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described. And to summarize them, we would say for leadership roles of the church, the elders and the deacons are offices filled by men. And as Scott's been teaching us from Titus 1, we've seen that this is... Um, that it is these men who are primarily responsible for the teaching and protection of the body. This is God's design for displaying the love of Christ for his church. Men have this incredible responsibility to display Christ and his loving servant leadership toward the body. I mean, what a responsibility they have. They really do. I mean, we've been learning about that. It's sobering. So another time to pause. And maybe evaluate. Am I making that God-given role a joy for them? This role to serve us, to lead us, to protect us. Am I making that a joy for them or a burden? As we've been learning on Sundays, our elders take their role very seriously. So I want to be a joy to them, right? And I know you do too. And there's a reference. There's Hebrews 13. I don't think that's on your outline. 
but you can look that up. Women, the roles and privilege that, privileges privilege, that God has given us um, are about displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church in her relationship to her Savior. We respond, and we follow, and we lead, uh, take the, and we follow the lead of our elders and deacons. And we use our gifts and abilities and resources God has entrusted to us as we serve under their leadership and in cooperation with their leadership. We display the self-giving love of Christ. We bear his image as we participate. So when we serve in our ministries in the church, they are all overseen by elders and deacons. Scott Maxwell is the elder over Wellspring. And there's protection See, our elders, they love the church, they love the Lord, they love his word, and they love us, and they care for us, and they serve us in their leadership. And this is all about how God displays his love and his care and protection and leadership for his people, and how we, his people, trust him and follow his lead. And in marriage, we find the very same principles at work. Husbands have this at times, difficult responsibility, this calling to love their wives. And how? Like Christ loved the church. So another time to pause and ask, do you see that high calling that they have, wives, those of you that are married? How are you helping in that? I'm not talking about how they're doing. Don't let your mind go there. Are you, as much as it depends on you, making that easy for them? Or hindering? Are you being lovable? That's how I ask myself. This responsibility for husbands to love wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, just think about that. Remember how he did that? How he loved the church? He gave himself to purchase us for himself. So if you're married, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband as to the Lord. We get to serve, we get to give ourselves away in that. So whether you are single or married, we all have the privilege of displaying our trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities that God has over us. Whether it is a husband, a parent, a boss, a church leader. Because see, when men and women fulfill their God-given roles, And we, as women, live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, under our husbands, under the authority that he's placed. Um, The word of God is honored. The word of God is honored. And the gospel is put on display. And we actually demonstrate to uh, one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship to his bride, with his bride. And this is why we embrace who God's created us to be. Because God's got, he has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world. Through not only our spiritual equality, but also in different roles. Do you see that? I mean, think about the members of the Godhead. And Scott talked about this on Sunday. They each have different roles, along with their divine equality. Think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God to be this self-giving love. Each of the three 
manifest the self-giving love toward one another. Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people, and the Spirit gives him himself to reveal the Son to his people. The Son takes on a different role from the Father without losing any self-giving love, without losing any deity. So see, to diminish any one of their unique roles will cause us to miss something of who God is. This is so important. If we seek to erase God-given roles, then we make the image of God within us less visible. We are image bearers of the living God. Think about that. We are equal before the cross, and he has given us different divinely assigned roles. And when redeemed male and female live and work together as God intended, being conformed more into the image of Christ, it's beautiful. There's joy. It's satisfying. And it is God-glorifying. So let's grow and let's encourage one another to embrace and love the roles that he has for us because God is best seen within us, within our marriages, within our families, within the church, within our culture, as we are obedient to him in those roles he has for us. And because it exalts God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to not live up to the role that God has given us, men and women, or cross-world boundaries that God has for us, is to cloud the visibility of God in and through us as redeemed people. It's to send a distorted message to a lost world. His created order is good. God took delight in it. Remember, what did he say? It's good. And you can see his pleasure in what he's made. And it reflects his character. And as believing women, we can love it. We can love it as well. Because it was given to us by our wise creator. And not only that, but there really is peace and purpose and joy for women who shepherds her heart and mind every day to embrace God's plan. And you know what? Because this is, um, these are such critical images, isn't it any wonder that they're at the center of such a strong battle today? <clears throat> we shouldn't be surprised that Satan wants to wage war and that our flesh wants to wage war and the culture wants to wage war. God determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look at God's heart at his heart for male and his heart for female, his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and that. We need to look at all of it and just say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you, and I'll humbly bring myself in line with that. You're my creator. You have a right to rule what you've made, and your rule is good. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking, if we're not shepherding our hearts in the word of God, if we don't understand <coughs> what his word says, what it means to be a woman biblically, and how those roles are to function within our home and within our church and within our culture, you know what's going to happen? Sooner or later, we will be vulnerable in our homes, in our churches, and in our culture to the very same kinds of thinking that's turned the secular world upside down. Listen, 
I keep saying this is important. This is important. Your view of God will determine your view of every other aspect of your life. Theology really does matter. We need to take this seriously because when we choose to live apart from his design, we distort the gospel picture and we miss the entire point of being a woman. Every time I value my independence, my life plans, and my opinions over what would bring God glory in displaying his image of self-giving love, it's rebellion against God and who he created me to be. And this really doesn't even make sense apart from the gospel, does it? Nothing, no part of life does. But it's our only motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan and gospel purposes. And Titus 2 instructs us as older women to teach the younger women. And ladies, we need to be teaching our daughters and sons. God's design for them is male and female. They need to hear the truth from God's word from creation regarding biblical manhood and biblical womanhood so they will recognize and reject the world's voice and can be confident and who God created them to be. And lastly, another loud competing voice in our culture, and it, and it just continues to get louder. And you know what? We know there's nothing new under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes says there's, there's nothing new under the sun. But this is where we are. And, um, but a loud voice that we are hearing a lot of is that of sexuality and sensuality, we live in a culture of extremes, and, you know, sexuality and sensuality is big money. It sells, and it's being marketed to us in every way. First Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. How countercultural is that? But we're called to be modest. We're called to be discreet and self-controlled in our actions. And how we dress. See, our attitude, our behavior, and dress is really all a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. I love that John MacArthur, I like to, I always quote him here, um, but I just like what he says about this. He says, you show me a woman with a beautiful character. You show me a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. You show me a woman who has an incorruptible heart. You show me a woman who comes to worship God, and I'll show you a woman whose wardrobe you don't have to worry about because her heart dictates that issue. See, it always goes back to the heart. It's a matter of conviction. You know, remember our um, Wellspring verse. What are we supposed to do with that heart? Guard it above all else. The way we dress goes right to the heart of why we wear what we wear. So any distinction Discussion on modesty always begins with the heart. And the world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves and we can feel good about ourselves and we can flaunt ourselves however we want, flaunting certain features. You have the right, you have the freedom to dress however you want to dress and expose whatever you want to expose. It's your body. So if you don't like it, don't look kind of attitude, right? That's what the world would say. But you know what? We're different. We're different. We're called and we have the privilege to display something way more glorious. Our Savior. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we see in 1 Peter 3 that our beauty, it doesn't come from our outward adornment or hair products. That it should be the hidden in person, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So what should our aim be as women? If we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct and different from our cultural message, culture's message. And you know what? While men are fully responsible before God for their mind and for their heart and for their eyes, Guys can just be stimulated visually by these by by things they see. You know, even when they don't want to look, even when they're battling. And when we dress immodestly, it sends a the visual message to a guy, whether we mean to or not. So, you know, are we placing an obstacle in their way by how we dress? In Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about going to great efforts to help a brother to not stumble in his walk with the Lord. So whether we understand it or not, that's not the point. Guys are in a battle. We have battles too, and some may be the very same thing, but it can be really intense for them. So we can help them, and we can love them by dressing modestly, Someone said this, and I love it. It's, we can give guys a rest for their eyes. Does not sound like something we want to do. Give guys a rest for their eyes. So questions we can ask is, are um, are, are clothes, clothes provocative? Are they seductive? Do they honor nakedness? What's the purpose of clothing anyway? Cover, to cover nakedness, not to draw attention to your naked skin, especially certain areas. I heard it put this way. Modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to honor God and a desire to serve others, particularly men, and not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing. And you set aside your self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. And this is really uncomfortable for me to stand up here and talk about this. But you know what? We're women. We're mature women. And we just need to, we need to just get real and talk about it. We need to talk about God's word. And his heart for us. And there are parts of our body that would be considered naked. That are for our husbands or possible future husbands' eyes only. No one else's. One being our breasts. Our breasts are not for anyone else's eyes. Whether full or part. And it seems like we just see that everywhere. It's just in our society. And I know I'm like looking at all of you preaching to the choir. But um, it's important to remember and it's important to teach our, our daughters this. Not at 16, 
<laughs> but from the very beginning. Um, but cleavage, it causes men to lust, some men to lust. And so we need to just guard against that. Um, short shorts, um, just it's the way it is. So we need to know and we need to evaluate. And you know what? If you see me, please, sisters, tell me. I, we need one another. We need to be humble in this and help one another. But are we being seduced and lured by the world's temptation to look more like the world? Or are we loving and are we worshiping God by taking care to be purposeful in how we dress? And you know, I'm not talking about wearing, you know, what my grandma wore. You know, those muumuu dresses or gunny sacks. I mean, that would be such an extreme distraction. Being dowdy or odd is not more spiritual. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. It could be a distraction, and it could put people's attention on us rather than on the Lord. So we want to aim for what is appropriate for us, for our budget, for the things we do and the places we go. And we can dress fashionably and modestly, and it's challenging. <laughs> it's really challenging when you go out there and shop. You know, we have to be selective but it's worth persevering to find the things that enhance our ability to reflect Christ, not detract from it. Modesty really is about conviction. What I wear relates to how I worship and how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have to be intentional when we shop um, and ask others. And in closing, there will always be cultural trends, shifts, changes, and loud voices. But we can take our cues and definitions from Scripture and not the culture. And we can confidently trust in that. The Word of God never changes. So without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we will always have to guard against our self-willed mindsets in our own hearts. And, you know, I hope that after today, you will ask God, you know, where has worldly thinking maybe seeped in to uh, about this into my heart because our lives are about bringing God glory um, and we do that as male and female in distinctive ways that's why God created us male and female to tell his great love story of the bridegroom Jesus Christ and the bride his church Men and women point to that story in different ways with men and women. That's why it's so important that we know and we humbly bow and we teach it to the next generation. Let's pray. God, you are our wise creator. And in all your wisdom, you sent your son to become a man and suffer at the hand of sinful man, and rise after three days. And that was your wise, wise plan. And this is good news. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a power, but it is the power of God. So may we display selfless living, sacrificial living, laying down our own thoughts, and bowing at your wise plan for us as creator and sustainer. And after today, Lord, may we just um, 
May we embrace and love and speak uh, boldly the truth about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. In your son's name we pray. Amen.